I've worked on Alzheimer's my entire career for 20 years. It is a very important disease. It's a dreadful disease. It's a common disease. I'm, as a researcher, very interested in common diseases, those things that we all worry about as we get older. And Alzheimer's is one of those diseases, right? It touches everybody, all of us. That's Dr. Jason Moore. He's director of the Institute for Biomedical Informatics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the Senior Associate Dean for Informatics and Director of the Division of Informatics in the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology and Informatics, where he's a professor. We sat down with Jason during our final My Alls Road Trip stop in Philadelphia to learn more about his work on the research side of Alzheimer's and to better understand the relationship between researchers and clinicians like Dr. Jason Karlowish, who we met in another episode of this podcast. Biomedical informatics is a broad discipline, covers a lot of different areas from the basic sciences, uh, using computers and software to study DNA and cells, all the way to the clinical side, actually developing algorithms and software for improving healthcare, for the delivery of healthcare, things like electronic health records, capturing patient data, to on the research side, predicting who's at risk for common diseases. So the relationship between researchers and clinicians is extremely important for improving uh, healthcare. The clinicians have the important questions, right? They're the boots on the ground in the clinic, seeing patients. They know where the healthcare challenges are. They know where the improvements need to be made. They have the best understanding of disease and, and what we need to do. And they can feed those questions to us as researchers and then we can take that on as a research question and do the work that's necessary to answer that question and then feed that back to the clinician. So that relationship between the researcher and clinician is absolutely vital. And the academic medical centers that do that the best are in the best position to impact human health. Every clinician practices medicine in a different way, right? And that varies from person to person. It varies depending on where they went to medical school or where they went to nursing school what institution they're at, what their history is. And the only way to see those patterns of healthcare practice from clinician to clinician is to aggregate all that data in a central place and to be able to analyze it. So that's what we can do now. So you can learn from the data and then push that back out to the clinicians and say, hey, if you do it this way, you'll be faster, you'll be better, you'll save patients' lives. During our conversation with Jason, he shared his perspective on why after so many years of research, we still don't fully understand Alzheimer's disease and what makes the science so challenging. We all have family members or friends or acquaintances that have been touched by this terrible disease. So I've been interested in it from that point of view my entire career, that th this is a common disease. It has a huge impact on people's lives. It has a huge impact on us as a country here in the United States and around the world. And I'm particularly interested from a research point of view in Alzheimer's because it's, it's an extremely complex disease, right? We don't fully understand Alzheimer's disease yet, despite many, many years of research. And the reason for that is because it's so complex. I believe, this is my personal opinion, that everybody who's afflicted with this disease is different. Everybody has different underlying risk factors for the disease, different genetic factors, different environmental exposures. All of those risk factors work together in a complex way to determine an individual's risk and whether they actually develop the disease. And then if they develop the disease, how severe it is, how they respond to treatment, et cetera. There are some common things, of course, that probably put everything, everybody at risk. 
But what makes it so challenging is everybody that has Alzheimer probably has a unique constellation of risk factors that might be some of which are probably specific to them or their family. And so that makes, from a research point of view, makes studying the disease very difficult because typically what we do is we we look at data of a bunch of people with the disease and a bunch of healthy controls that don't have Alzheimer's and look for the similarities and the differences. But if all the patients have a unique constellation of risk factors, that doesn't give us a very clear pattern to work with, right? The kinds of things we can easily detect as risk factors are things that are common to all the patients and not common to all the controls. So that makes it easiest for to find find things. And we found a few of those things. For example, the apolipoprotein E gene is has a strong genetic effect on Alzheimer's. And that's something that's common to most Alzheimer patients and not common to most controls. But there are a whole host of other genetic factors that are probably specific to each patient. So that makes studying Alzheimer's very difficult. When facing a disease like Alzheimer's, it's tempting to oversimplify the problem and focus on a silver bullet solution or cure, as it were. However, Jason suggests an alternative way of framing this complex problem, and he shared some of his insights related to his work with computer algorithms. So I've spent my career studying what's called epistasis, which is a word that means synergistic interaction between genes. So the way most people have approached the genetics of common diseases is to look one gene at a time to, again, identify that silver bullet, right? That one gene that's predictive. What I've focused my career on is looking at combinations of genes, trying to understand how genes work together, because that's how biology works. Genes don't work in isolation. They work with each other. That's how cells work how physiology works, everything is is interactive and synergistic. And so I've spent my career developing computer algorithms to identify combinations of genetic risk factors that are predictive. And again, coming from this point of view that it's a complex problem. And we've made a lot of progress on that. We've developed a number of computer algorithms that are very good at detecting these kinds of patterns, and especially more recently in big data that we have access to now where we can measure the whole human genome. And when we look, we do find this kind of complexity. We find that combinations of genetic risk factors predict better than individual risk factors or individual factors just simply added together. So that's a contribution that we've made to the Alzheimer problem is is developing the algorithms that allow people to embrace the complexity and look at the interactions between risk factors rather than looking at them individually. Despite great advances in technology over the past couple of decades, there are aspects of the disease that remain difficult to measure. Jason provided us with context as to what these difficulties are and what we need to do going forward if we're to provide researchers with a complete picture of this complex problem. So there are some things that we measure really well in Alzheimer's disease. Genetic factors is one. We can measure the human genome very accurately and very completely now. And that has certainly led to some new discoveries for Alzheimer's. One of the things we don't measure well is the environment. We know environment plays an important role, but we just don't measure that well. We don't have a good sense for what's in our diet, right? What what do we eat and what's in our food and our water that might put us at risk? We don't measure that very well. What are the things in the air that we're exposed to that we breathe that come into our body? 
we don't measure that very well. So we need to do a better job of measuring our environmental exposure. So that's one big piece that I think is going to be very important for Alzheimer's disease that we don't yet measure. Brain imaging is something that we're doing, which provides a lot of very useful information. Being able to image the brain, measure brain structure and brain function, unfortunately, that's very expensive. So on the research side, we might have several thousand patients that we can study that have had brain imaging measurements. What we really need are hundreds of thousands or millions of patients that we've measured brain imaging on. So we have more work to do to make that technology cheaper so that we can measure more people with it. Today, we no longer need to worry about collecting enough patient information. But in order for researchers like Jason to efficiently sift through the volumes of healthcare data, they need to build powerful algorithms that will hopefully lead to a better understanding of Alzheimer's and reveal more effective treatment options. Science for a long time was driven by small pieces of data that we would collect from very focused experiments. We now live in a world where we can do collect data at a very rapid rate. For example, the cell phones that we carry around are collecting tons of information about us, right? Our movements, you know, listening to what we say, they're reacting to what we do. And that generates a huge volume of information. So we can collect a lot of data now, and computers have enabled that along with technology. And so now we as scientists are very much overwhelmed by the volumes of data that we can collect very easily. We need computers then to make sense of that data, to look for the patterns in the data, to identify those things that are important in very large data sets. That's a very computationally intensive task. And the data itself is very complex, so we need special computer algorithms to sift through all that complex data. That's something we as humans would never be able to do. We don't have that capability. We're just too slow. Computers can do it very fast. It's this interesting situation where we can collect all this data, and computers have enabled that, but we need the computers then to turn around and analyze the data to provide us new insights. Alzheimer's research, just like every other aspect of healthcare, benefits from improved efficiencies and access to better patient information. Electronic health records and a learning health system will allow scientists like Jason to work better, smarter, and faster toward a much-needed cure. Biomedical informatics has played a very important role in improving healthcare. And one of the biggest advances are what are called electronic health records, right? Which is basically a database that stores all the data that is collected about each patient as they come through the system. Now, with all that data in a database, we can very quickly query that data, look for patterns, identify things that are important, and then in turn, use that to improve healthcare. So we can identify efficiencies, we can identify problems, we can you know, identify things that are risk factors for common diseases. So electronic health records have really revolutionized medicine and feed into what we call a learning health system, where the healthcare system is constantly improving and constantly learning and constantly getting better, but we need access to the data and we need the computer algorithms to analyze that data to feed into that improvement process. But we're in that period of time now where that's starting to work. And we have the data, the electronic health records in place, the computer algorithms, and are starting to learn from that and feed that back into the healthcare system. Artificial intelligence, or AI, and machine learning are probably buzzwords you've heard thrown around quite frequently. 
These technologies are helping Jason and his colleagues analyze patient data at incredible speeds. He explained how they work and why he's so enthusiastic about these types of tools. Machine learning is a technology that we use to recognize patterns in data. It's, it's very analogous to how the human brain works. Our brain is wired through our visual uh, senses, through our other senses, to identify patterns in our landscape, the, the area around us. It's very similar to driving a car. We scan, scan the landscape. We see patterns, we react to those patterns, we learn from those patterns, and that's what helps us drive a car. So machine learning is very analogous to that process. We're trying to get a computer to recognize patterns, learn from those patterns, make decisions uh, in an automated way. The algorithms naturally try different solutions, get rewarded when something works and get penalized when something doesn't work, and through trial and error, learn over time how, how to do a certain task. Artificial intelligence is a, is a broader category of can we get computers to do the things that we as humans do? So machine learning is about identifying patterns. That's a component of machine learning, right? To function as a human, we need to be able to see those patterns and digest those patterns and make decisions from them. But AI is all the other things that we do, things like recognizing speech and interpreting speech. And all the things that make us human are the components of artificial intelligence. Can we get a computer to do those things, to reason, to make decisions, to learn, to be creative? So most of what we do in the artificial intelligence space right now is really more in that machine learning space. We're pretty good at detecting patterns and making decisions on those patterns. But all those other things that make us human are things that are very challenging right now for us to get a computer to do. You know, things like emotions like love and jealousy and all those human emotions are very difficult right now for us to, to implement in a computer. We're certainly working in that direction, but I think it's going to take a long time for us to get there. So we're really in the infancy of getting computers to do all the things that we as humans do, but we're getting pretty good at certain parts of it, like the pattern recognition part. So computers are good at recognizing facial expressions. They're good at hearing voice and, and looking at the patterns, the tone and inflection points in our voice. They're good at that. And I think if you trained a computer where you had some human subjects that exhibited particular emotions and a computer was studying their facial expressions, their speech, their gestures, uh, and then tying that to different emotions. I think a computer could learn to detect emotions, but through the proxy of, of the physical things that we do when we're feeling emotions. So I don't think a computer could detect emotion in exactly the same way we do as humans, but can certainly pick up on some of the emotional cues. And while technology continues to evolve, there remains one data point that is increasingly more important to scientists like Jason and relevant to solving the complex problem of Alzheimer's, our human story. Story is very important, and I'm really excited about the work of the My Alzheimer Project to hear patient stories, to film them, and to hear what they're saying, to look at their, their gestures, their expressions. And I think there's a tremendous amount of information in patient stories that we historically have not captured. 
that is a whole nother layer of important information on top of the things that I've just mentioned. I'm very hopeful that the My Alzheimer Story Project will provide a whole new layer of information and data about patients that we can then incorporate with the genetic, the environmental, the imaging, and all the other clinical things that we can measure. And I think that will really, as I mentioned, Alzheimer's is a very heterogeneous disease. If everybody has a unique constellation of risk factors and in some ways has a unique instance of Alzheimer's, right, their own specific disease, I think the stories will help bring that out and will help us get a handle on the heterogeneity of of the disease and how each person's different and how their life experience has been different. Our unique personal stories are critical tools in the fight against Alzheimer's and dementia. And the days of a one-size-fits-all solution to healthcare are coming to a close. We believe in the promises of precision medicine to help us all live more healthy lives. And we were excited to hear that Jason Thing's story plays a significant role. The historic strategy has been to develop a drug that cures everybody. Well, we now know that doesn't happen. And, and that's partly because each of us is a, a unique individual and responds to drugs differently. Some of us respond well, some of us don't respond at all. Some of us have adverse reactions to drugs. So the hope is that by looking at all the individual information that we can find subgroups of people that are more similar to each other than they are to everybody else. And that by understanding those similarities on those subgroups of people that we can develop new treatments that target their individual factors, right, that are causing the disease. So that's what we call precision medicine, moving away from the silver bullet idea of treating everybody, which doesn't work, especially for these common complex diseases to focusing on subgroups of patients that have enough similarity that we could develop a drug that could help them. If everybody's unique, there's no way we can develop a drug for every single person or every single family. So there needs to be a a middle space, right, where we can find these subgroups of people. So we've seen this with a lot of other common diseases, type 2 diabetes, right? What we label as type 2 diabetes is probably several different types of diabetes. And there's a lot of research now pointing to that. We've seen that with breast cancer. Breast cancer is a number of different diseases, each with their own characteristics, each requiring a unique treatment. So we've seen this over and over again now with a number of other common diseases, and it's certainly going to be true in Alzheimer's. The dangers of oversimplifying a disease like Alzheimer's go beyond the patient experience. Whether it's the broader impact of not aging well as a society or unbridled research that focuses on one pharmacological aspect of the larger problem. Jason cautioned us about why we need to think so critically about research. You know, there's another aspect to the societal, ethical, political spectrum of the research that we're doing. You know, unfortunately, researchers, some are motivated by making a big discovery and patenting it and starting a company and making a lot of money. We live in a capitalist society, and and there are certainly good reasons to do that, but it often skews the science in a way that might benefit starting a company rather than actually figuring out this complex disease. One of the the results of that approach is oversimplifying the disease, right? Looking for that silver bullet that's going to, you know, make the next big company. And I think we need to step back from that. If we really want to crack this Alzheimer disease problem, then we need to embrace the complexity that we've just been talking about and really put our research efforts behind understanding that complexity 
and, and how we can use it to our advantage rather than ignoring it, which is where a lot of the research has been the last 20 years. In another episode of this podcast, we talked with Dr. Jason Karlowish, and he shared his thoughts about a potential timeline for a viable Alzheimer's treatment. We wanted to know what the research timeline looks like and why Jason thinks we should remain optimistic about the future of Alzheimer's and dementia research. In terms of timeline, we have a lot of work to do. To define patient subgroups is going to require a lot of research. It's going to require a lot of new data, the environmental, the story data that we've just talked about, the imaging data, to be able to put all that together. And then it's going to require a lot of biomedical informatics, a lot of new computer algorithms and software and technology to find those patterns that define those patient subgroups. So I think we definitely need at least another 10 years of research of measuring these additional factors, developing the computer algorithms, and really working hard to identify those patient subgroups. So I think we have probably at least 10 years of research to do to find those subgroups. And then once we accomplish that, then we can start developing the new drugs, the targeted treatments for those subgroups. And and as each year goes by, those computer algorithms are going to get better and better at detecting patterns and making decisions and being able to look at lots of different kinds of data simultaneously. So I think over 10 years, we're not only going to see advances, but we're going to see those advances accelerate, right? Year by year, we're going to get faster, faster and faster and better and better at identifying those things that we need to help cure this horrible disease. It's reassuring to hear from experts like Jason and learn more about the scientific work that happens all over the world on a daily basis. And it's important to understand that when it comes to the science of brain health and Alzheimer's, we don't lack talent. Like many things in life, it's about finite resources, like time and money. We need money to do these studies. We need money to develop the technology to collect the data that we need. We need money to develop the computer algorithms to sift through all that data. We need money to develop the new treatments uh, based on those research results. And for political reasons, societal reasons, money has often been in short supply for researchers. There has been a little bit of good news just in the last two years. Uh, Congress has appropriated uh, several hundred million dollars of additional money for Alzheimer research. Hopefully that's not a one-time thing. Hopefully we will see that continue. I think that'll be very important for the kinds of advances that we've been talking about. If we're going to make that the kind of progress in the next 10 years and, and, and after We're going to need continued uh, investment at levels that we haven't seen before, right, to really make these advances. And it's a worthwhile investment because our population is aging and Alzheimer's is becoming a bigger and bigger problem as people live longer. And also an important thing to keep in mind is that the technology that we develop for Alzheimer's can be taken and applied to other diseases, right? The stories that you're capturing from Alzheimer patients would be useful for a whole bunch of other diseases and add a whole new dimension to a lot of other common diseases that we're we're all concerned about. Thank you, Jason, for taking the time to sit with us. We appreciate the continued work you're doing to engage the problem of Alzheimer's on so many fronts, for being an early champion of our project, and for helping to make the Miles Road Trip a reality. We would also like to thank some of our other friends at Penn, Dr. Jason Karlowish, Terrence Casey, and Hannah Chervitz for organizing and hosting all of our Miles Road Trip conversations during our stop in Philadelphia. 
We've included links in the show notes so you can learn more about Jason's work and the topics we covered in this episode. And finally, if you'd like to support this podcast and our project, please visit myalzheimers.net. Today's program was mixed by Woody Woodhall. This podcast is a production of Joe Digital Inc. and the My Alzheimer's Story Project, raising awareness and helping Alzheimer's research one story at a time. I'm Zach Jordan. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the My Alzheimer's Story Project Podcast.